Welcome to Lessons from the Helpful Dead, where you'll learn the world is not what it seems and you are much more than you think you are. Here you'll learn about positive and reassuring messages from supposedly dead people whose main purpose is to help us. Find out what happens after we die, why we're here, how we got here, where we're going, and discover that you are really a powerful eternal spirit. I'm Dan McEnany. Today we'll talk about mass murder and what you have to keep in mind when you think about mass murder. This week I read an article about the biggest killing machine in human history in Mao Zedong in China with the Communist Party. Killed over 50 million people in China in his 40-year reign. The Chinese Communist Party in its reign is responsible for at least 65 million deaths of its own people. And some estimate that the actual count might be as high as 500 million. That's an awful lot of souls. Do you think there's room for them all? Well, of course there is because they're not physical bodies, they're spirits. And spirits, as we know, don't take up space. So what do we need to keep in mind? Well, of course, we have to remember this is the human time-space illusion. The illusion is real enough for us and people, all those 50 million experienced pain and other sorrows. But we need to remember the world we perceive is the one we perceive with our five senses. And that's only one way of perceiving the world. As discussed in previous episodes, Uh, Evil, as we perceive it, is part of a much larger event. Now, why the big selves that uh, empowered those individual people, why they chose to enter bodies at a time and place in the world when they knew ahead of time, given the probabilities that they might likely meet some horrible fate. It doesn't make you feel any better about what happened to them, but it's good to at least keep that in mind. Evil has been discussed in a number of previous episodes, and I won't go into them here today. But the point today is we also need to keep in mind the role of consciousness units. And if you'll forgive me for reading a lot of what Seth had to say about consciousness units, I'll do that while I also try to relate it to our idea of death. Consciousness units, you'll remember from previous episodes, they're how consciousness creates our reality. They are what you'd call incipient matter. In other words, they're spirit form, without form really, and when they uh, manifest in our reality, they actually make up all the material things that exist that we see with our five physical senses. Here's some of what he said. The consciousness units are literally in every place and time at once. That's pretty impressive. They possess the greatest adaptability and a profound inborn propensity for organization of all kinds. They act as individuals and yet each carries within it a knowledge of all other kinds of activity that is happening in any other given unit or group of units. Coming together, the units actually Form the systems of reality in which they have their experience. In your system, for example, that's our system, they are within the phenomenal world. They will always come under the guise of any particular pattern of reality then. In your terms, they can move forward or backward in time, but they also possess another kind of interior mobility within time as you know it. 
as there are insides to apples, so think of the ordinary moment as an apple. In usual experience, you hold the apple in your hand or eat it. Using this analogy, the apple itself, just as the moment, the apple itself would contain infinite variations of itself within itself. Therefore, consciousness units can operate even within time, as you understand it, in ways that are difficult to explain. Time not only goes backward and forward, but inward and outward. I'm still using your idea of time here to some degree. Well, later I hope to lead you beyond it, but in terms of which I'm speaking, it is the inward and outward directions of time that give you a universe that seems to be fairly permanent and yet is also being created. So we, with our senses, we perceive things in time, but the consciousness units are not tied as we are to this one reality. They're aware not only of past, present, and future, but of all of the probable realities. So Seth goes on, the inward and outward thrust allows for several important conditions that are necessary for the establishment of a relatively separate, stable universe system. Such a system may seem like a closed one from any viewpoint within itself, just as we think ours is basically, okay, we've got our universe, it's closed off, and today there's a lot of talk about uh, uh, UFOs and aliens and so forth, but we figure, okay, we're us, we're closed off from others. And what he says next is, yet this inward and outward thrusting condition, that's of the consciousness units, effectively sets up the boundaries and uniqueness of each universal system while allowing for a constant give and take of energy among them. So we are perceiving our universe, but on the larger level, there is a constant give and take of energy between ours and other realities. He goes on, no energy is ever lost. It may seem to disappear from one system, but if so, it emerges in another. The inward and outward thrust that's not perceived is largely responsible for what you think of as ordinary consecutive time. It's of the utmost importance, of course, that these consciousness units are literally indestructible. Indestructible, that's an important point, and I'll come back to it. They can take any form, organize themselves in any kind of time behavior and seem to form a reality that's completely dependent upon its apparent form and structure, even though it isn't. Yet, disappearing through one of the physicist's black holes, for example, though structure and form would seem to be annihilated and time drastically altered, there would be emergence at the other end where the whole, quote, package of a universe, close quote, having been closed in the black hole, would be reopened. There's the constant surge into your universe of new energy through infinite, minute sources. The sources are the consciousness units themselves. In their own way, using an analogy in certain respects, the consciousness un units operate as minute but extremely potent black holes and white holes, as they're presently understood by your physicists. The consciousness units following that analogy serve as source points or holes through which energy falls into your system or is attracted to it and remember, attracted to it by our thoughts, and so doing, it forms our system. The experience of forward time and the appearance of physical matter in space and time and all the phenomenal world results. Now, as the consciousness units leave your system, time is broken down. Its effects are no longer experienced as consecutive, and matter becomes more and more plastic until its mental elements become apparent. So what we perceive as solid matter, uh, the consciousness units that are forming that solid matter, the further they get away from our particular reality, the more they realize it is mental and not matter.
He goes on, new consciousness units enter and leave your system constantly. With the system en masse, however, through their great and small organizational structures, the consciousness units are aware of everything happening, not only on top of the moment, but within all of its probabilities. And this means biologically the cell, that's the cells that make us up, right? The cell is aware of all of its probable variations. While in your time and structures, it holds its unique position as a part of, say, any given organ in your body. In greater terms, the cell is a huge physical universe orbiting an invisible consciousness unit. And in your terms, the consciousness unit will always be invisible beyond the smallest phenomenon you can perceive with any instrument. To some extent, however, its act can indirectly be uh, perceived uh, upon the uh, indirectly apprehended through the effect of the phenomenon you can perceive. Well, that's whatever. Uh, now, the, electronic, the electromagnetic energy units mentioned earlier, which we've talked about in past sessions, represent the stage of emergence, the threshold that practically activates the consciousness units in your terms. It's vital that you understand this inward and outward thrust of time, however, and that you realize from this flows the consecutive appearance of the moment. The thrusting gives dimensions to time that so far you've not even begun to realize. You live on the surface of moments with no understanding of the unrecognized and unofficial realities that lie beneath. And as beneath means everywhere around. It's not necessarily just beneath. All of this, once more, is tied in with your accepted neurological rec uh, recognition of certain messages over others. Your mental prejudice that effectively blinds you to quite other valid biological communications that are indeed present all of the, quote, time. Well, as I've said many times in the past, that's because for our purposes and what we want to do, we necessarily must have a close, uptight focus and disregard uh, these other realities. Now, uh, here, uh, Seth begins to get closer to uh, brushing up against the concept of, of death as we understand it. I'm trying to tell you something about the greater reality of your species. Yet to do so with any justice, I must divest you of certain concepts about the beginning of time or, quote, man's early history. To start with, however, we will for a while lean on old terminology. Now, the, the consciousness units form all systems simultaneously, having formed yours, and from their energy diversifying themselves into physical forms, they were aware of all the probable variations from any given biological strain. There was never any straight line of development as, say, from reptiles to mammal, ape, and man. Instead, there were great, still continuing, infinitely rich, parallel explosions of life forms and patterns in as many directions as possible. There were animal men and man animals, using your terms, that's something we've talked about in the past and past episodes, that shared both time and space for many centuries. This is, as you well know, a physical system in time. Here, cells die and are replaced. Knowing their own indestructibility, the consciousness units within them simply change form, retaining, however, the identity of all the cells that they have been. So they remember the identity of, of every cell that they've been. While the cell dies physically, its inviolate nature is not betrayed. It is simply no longer physical. That kind of death, then, is natural in one way or another within your system. I'll be speaking here from many viewpoints, and later I'll discuss 
and full your ideas of mortality. Here, however, let me state that all life is cooperative. It also knows it exists beyond its form. The experience of your species involves a certain kind of consciousness development, highly vital. This necessitated a certain kind of specialization, a long, uh, long-term identification with form. That's something I've mentioned in the past to, for the ego to develop. We had to uh, focus tightly uh, on just one version of Earth, right? A certain long-term identification with form. Cellular structure maintains brilliant effectiveness in the body's present reality, but knows itself free of it. Man's particular kind of consciousness fiercely identified with the body. This was a necessity to focus energy toward physical manipulation, which we've talked about. To some important extent, the same applies to the animals. The cell might gladly die, but the specifically oriented man and animal consciousness would not so willingly let go. And that describes us as we are today. The cell is individual and struggles for rightful survival, yet its time is limited, and the body's survival is dependent upon the cell's innate wisdom. The cell must die, finally, for the body to survive. And only by dying can the cell further its own development and therefore ensure its own greater survival. So the cell knows that to die is to live. <laughs> to die in one reality is to live in another because the cells, which form around the consciousness units, are aware of all the realities of which they've been a part. So man's consciousness, and to some extent that of the animals, is more specifically identified with form, however, in order to develop his own kind of individualized awareness, man had to consciously ignore for a while his own place within the structure of Earth. His experience of time would seem to be the experience of his identity. His consciousness <clears throat> would not seem to flow into his body before death and out of it after death. He would, quote, forget there was a time to die. He would forget that death meant new life. A natural message had to replace the old knowledge. In the body, certain cells kill other cells, and in so doing, the body's living integrity is maintained. The cells do each other that service. In the exterior world, certain animals kill others. You had for centuries then, speaking in your limited terms, a situation in which men and animals were both hunters and prey. In those misty eras, from your standpoint, these activities were carried on with the deepest, most sacred comprehension. The slain animal knew it would later look out through its slayer's eyes, attaining a newer, different kind of consciousness. The man, the slayer, understood the great sense of harmony that existed even in the slaying, and knew that, in turn, the physical material in his body would be used by the earth to replenish the vegetable and animal kingdoms. And here's the last paragraph of Seth that I'll read. Even when you lost sight, as you knew you would, <clears throat> of those deep connections, they would continue to operate until, in its, in its own way, man's consciousness could rediscover the knowledge and put it to use, deliberately and willfully, thereby bringing that consciousness to flower. In your terms, this would represent a great leap, for the egotistically aware individual would fully comprehend unconscious knowledge and act on his own out of choice. He would become a conscious co-creator. Obviously, this has not yet occurred. So what has all of this that uh, Seth stated, what does that have to do with the concept of death and mass death? Well, it comes down to the fact that our physical bodies are made up of cells, and those cells surround consciousness units 
that no, they are indestructible and can take on many forms. In fact, they have a memory of every form they've ever been a part of. And the cells that make up our body, they know they need to die in our system, but by, quote, dying in our system, they continue to exist in another. And so they know that to die is to live. So remember, as Seth has stated, every life, no matter how miserable, minute, or seemingly unimportant, every life is meaningful, and it's part of the soul's journey as it travels through various existences and experiences different realities. Each of those 50 million souls that were killed by Mao Zedong, the souls continue to exist, and the experience that they had is, in a sense, a part of the experience that they chose. Now, certainly the ego consciousness certainly did not choose it, but the bigger soul of which they're a part chose to enter into that reality. And when each of those individuals, quote, dies, close quote, when each of them dies, they realize that they continue to live, and they can reflect upon the reality they just left for whatever purposes suited them for coming into it in the first place. So mass murder is indeed a horrible, horrible thing, and there will come a time when we humans advance to the point where we no longer have that. We will, as Seth said, become conscious co-creators, conscious co-creators of all that we experience. Obviously, we're not there yet, but we're on our way. We just need to keep all those things in mind as we witness all of the atrocities going on on this probable version of our reality right now. Will it, help? Will it help you? I don't know. But certainly, perceiving all those realities and thinking, well, that's all there is, that's, that's uh, negative thinking that'll take you nowhere. So you've got to think about something, something more, something greater that exists beyond what we perceive. And some of what, stated, what Seth stated here about consciousness units might help you arrive at some kind of understanding about these events. They might not. It's up to you to decide how you want to think and feel about them. That concludes today's session. And once again, I'm Dan McEnany bringing you lessons from the helpful dead.